speeding through, and if you've been following with us in the reading plan uh, within the last couple weeks, you got to read the book of Micah. And me being my mind, I'm reading through Micah, and all of a sudden something catches my mind, and it kind of goes off, and I start thinking of this song, um, which I had seen in a movie. So if, you, if you're tracking me, it's kind of a little bit everywhere. Um, but in this old movie... Um, maybe some of you, are, I would figure several of you are familiar with it. It's an old Gary Cooper movie um, called Sergeant York. And in Sergeant York, um, in this movie, his character, he's kind of been running and running away from God and conversations and relationships, not just with God, but with others as well. And, and uh, the uh, preacher, who is uh, Walter Brennan, in his weird voice, I can't not hear it. Um, but he's been having these conversations with Alvin. And at, at this one scene in the dark, stormy night, um, all of a sudden, Alvin walks into the church and, and the pastor's leading the congregation through this, this singing of these hymns. And they're sitting there singing the hymns and in comes Alvin, who, which causes quite the stir because he's definitely not the person you would expect to see in the church. But through these conversations and one, he starts walking in and all of a sudden, uh, Walter Brennan's character switches the song and starts leading him in this old song, Give Me That Old Time Religion. This is an old southern uh, revival song. And they start singing, Give me that old time religion, that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. And I started thinking about that as I started reading this passage in Micah chapter 6. And that song, over and over, and, I, and I, it brings me back because today I, I hear different people and little conversations that I have with people in the community and within our church and different things of, of people that, that long for the good old days, that old time religion. That it would fix what's wrong in our society and what's wrong with, with what's going on. And in a sense, I, I, I wonder if they're right. But, there's always a but. I think in a sense that they're right, but at the same time, I believe that what they're calling for and what I'm thinking are not necessarily the same thing. Because I, I say that because I get a feeling that when we say that we want to return to those, you know, that good old time religion, that we're thinking in a way that, that we want to return back to a time of the good old days where, where I understood why things were the way they were and they were just simpler and that I could understand them and I could control them in a way that seemed fitting to me. Because we want comfort and we want control of the things around us. But what if old time religion, not as man has created it, but as God's word tells us, is actually exactly what we need? Because I was thinking about this as I'm reading Micah chapter 6, and I know to some degree where uh, 
our students that are at Nazarene Youth Conference are, are, are hearing and they're going through this passage in Matthew 22 where, where Jesus is, is confronted about what are all the different things I need to do to get to heaven and, and, Je- and he, Jesus says, well, you know the law and he goes, yeah, I've taken care of those. And in, in, in that same passage, he, he says, so, so what is it? What is, this, what is the great, greatest thing? And he says, the, the greatest thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And out of that, the, the students at NYC were hearing these messages of not just love God, not just love others, but it's, it's one equals into the other of the love lived out in the midst of God's people. And so today's passage from Micah chapter 6 comes out of that same kind of mentality. Because in, in, if, and I invite you to turn to and hold into that passage, starting with verse 1. Micah writes it during a turbulent time. He, uh, both kingdoms of Israel and Judah have, you know, part of the same family of Israel have drifted off course. They've kind of gone on their own way and they've ignored everything that was directed by God to do. And they've ignored Moses. They've ignored countless prophets at this point. Um, it's back and forth in relationship and you know what, what they do and how they do it. And it doesn't take much to see how far they've drifted um, from representing God as a set-apart people. They've lost their uniqueness in an attempt to be like everybody else. And so as a result of that deviation, we find this writing uh, from the prophet. If, if you, in, in Micah chapter 1, he starts foretelling of God's coming against both Israel and Judah. In chapter 2, he denounces the social evils uh, that are prevalent in both kingdoms. In the third chapter, he speaks against the rulers who hate the good and love the evil, and the prophets who lead God's people astray. And he tells them, there's, there's coming a day where you're going to face some punishment. Nevertheless, in the midst of all these troubles, Micah also speaks in chapter 4 about days to come when faithfulness and peace would be restored. And then we get to this important passage in chapter 5 where Micah even speaks of a ruler who will come from Bethlehem, which Matthew uses for us to better understand who Jesus is. But as you can imagine... Four chapters talking about punishment, coming exile, and all these different things that's, that's coming for their behavior. It doesn't have people too happy. And so in chapter 6, we find this conversation happening of a struggle. It's, uh, some, some commentators describe it as a law um, it's a court case. It's, it's this image of, of a plaintiff and a defendant and a jury. And as I read that, I, I kind of got it, but at the same time, other commentators talk of it more, and I, and I kind of think about it as a parent and child relationship, where the child's whining and the parent's trying to explain, explain things. And have you ever tried to debate with a kid? It doesn't always go so well. And, and so 
we, we have this passage, and it starts like this. And, and Micah is speaking God's words to the people of Israel. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against His people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. Now you can see why some think it's a law case. I mean, God is asking His people to to stand, to present their issues uh, that they have. At the same time, God is inviting... uh, the mountains and the foundations of the very earth uh, to, to serve as the mediator, the jury in these discussions. And the reason he does that is because they have watched history unfold. I mean, the mountains have seen everything that's going on. They've, they've seen that God has brought these people into the promised land and He's given them victory over their enemies and, and all the process of, of, of what God has done. But at the same time, he's also, they've also watched Israel through its highs and its lows. The highs of worship in Jerusalem and taking over the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and all this that's gone on to the point where they're now building uh, places on the mountains for pagan gods because they want to be like all the others around them. And so they've built these high places. And yet God makes it known that He's prepared to defend Himself against whatever the accusations that they are going to bring. And more importantly, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of His people turning away and going and doing other things than they're supposed to do over and over and over, there's something important. He says, My people, in verse 3, He lets it be known that they are nevertheless, in spite of all the the broken relationship, they are His people. This covenant relationship has been damaged by their unfaithfulness, but the relationship nonetheless still stands. God hasn't given up. And so once again, God in verse 3 commands His people to state their case. So you can imagine it as a parent and a kid. Maybe it's a teenager. At this point, they're kind of a teenager. Um, he, he, he says to them, tell me how, you've, how I've wronged you. How, how I, yeah, I want you to present your evidence. I mean, have, how have I wearied you? How have I failed you? How have I caused you frustration? I mean, what have I done that's made you this impatient with me? is it the other way? I mean, have the people wearied of God? Have they failed Him and caused Him frustration to the point that He would become impatient? And God interacts with these people around their concerns and doesn't dismiss their complaining. He doesn't just write it off. Well, they'll just be, that's the way they are. Instead, He develops these reasons of why they should be appreciative of his activity in their story, even as life has gotten difficult at times. 
Verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you. I paid for you. You are mine, okay? From the land of slavery. I, I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people. It's the second time he's called them that. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So God, God brings this case. He, he, he says, here's the things that I've done for you. Tell me how I've, how I've strained you, what I've done that's, gonna, that's made it in life oh so miserable. And he starts bringing these things, stories up that every Jewish child, teenager, and adult would know that they were part of God's faithfulness to their story. And he gives a story that, that maybe they should be more grateful than their current complaints suggest. I mean, he, he, gives these, he lists these saving acts that he, he has on Israel's behalf. Uh, instances uh, of the exodus from slavery in Egypt and the provision. The, the leadership of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So, so, you know, the prophet, the priest, and the prophetess. The deliverance from the Moab king of Balak who wanted curses sent on Israel. So, so he calls for a prophet and Balaam is the prophet that gets picked out and he starts, and, and he, instead of giving curses, sends blessings at God's behalf as they make their way through the wilderness. And then this climactic move of the, of the promised land himself, not just the journey to, but it doesn't stop there because he, he lists these two and he uses this familiar shorthand uh, in, in the scriptures of Shittim to, to Gilgal from the east side of the river to the west side of the river into the promised land. He wants them to remember that because of his actions, that, that, that where they started as undistinguished family, they have now emerged as from Egypt as a nation. You went in one way, but you came out totally different. The purpose of this listing is, is, is stated that you may know the saving acts of the Lord or the righteous acts of the Lord. The people are to remember so that they might come to a better realization, a more robust realization of what God has done because through them, God has brought life. He's brought health. And He's, and he's brought well-being both to not just the individuals that He's speaking to, but to the community as a whole. Now as we get into verse 6 and 7, it's, it's, it's very important and I think it's appropriate that we put ourselves in the place of the Israelites. To better understand this, that we would, as they begin to ask questions of God, that we would understand that, that often we find ourselves in asking these same questions. Because ultimately, the, the, we're asking this question, if, in, in view of my sin, in view of my failings before God, and what God has done on my behalf, what must I now do to please God? 
in view of who God is and who and what I've done to fail Him, what is it that God needs me to do now? And so they start listing. You know, God gave these evidence of blessings, so they give three proposals. Each is an escalation of its own right uh, of what they could do and that in their minds they could control and bring God back to their side of the issue. And they want to perform these external duties that they can they think of. So the first proposal is this worshiper should bring burnt offerings. And it says even a year old burnt offering because that was more, they could sacrifice a, a calf as of seven days old. But by saying a year, there's more investment in that. And so, you know, of, of worth, of value. And so they propose these burnt offerings. The second one is, is again, the same, but yet more. It's substantially more by offering a thousand rams and thousands of rivers of oil. If one ram is good enough, or a little oil is acceptable sacrifice, then surely thousands of rams and thousands of rivers of oil must be super acceptable. And then it gets desperate as the third proposal escalates the requirements beyond acceptable limits. Israelites are familiar with child sacrifice because it's a common practice among the nations surrounding them, the people that serve the god Molech. And so they ask him, well, do we need to give you our firstborn? And they already know the answer. The offering of a firstborn as a sacrifice would not please the Lord and in fact would condemn them more because it's a grievous sin. God has given them a way to redeem their firstborn by going on the seventh day and paying five talents. Here's the deal. God has already informed them what He's desired. He did it in the very beginning. And man's understanding of religion, something they can control and understand within the constructs of, of human practice, isn't what God is looking for. Yes, God instituted those practices of offering through Moses. But that was never the point. The answer to Israel's sin problem was not more or numerous or more painful uh, observance of sacrifice. The answer was something much deeper than any just religious observance. They needed a change of heart. Without that kind of change, Israel's conformity to the law was nothing other than just going through the motions. It was hypocrisy, in fact. There's only one sacrifice that the Lord desires from us, whether it be Israel or us today. And that's that God wants our hearts. And despite the good deeds that we can do or the evangelistic efforts that we can partake in, any offering that falls short of that is simply insufficient. We can do all the stuff, but that's not what it's about. For us to do any of the external things out of the context of relationship, with God gets back to those very same things of the bulls, the rams, and the oil. It's about what we can do on our own. And for us today, 
often when faced with our own sin, with faced with our own failures and, and misrepresentations and, and selfishness and all those different things, when, when we face it and we look in the mirror and we see what really it is, we often feel that we, and we know we've fallen short of where God would want us to be. And so what do we do? We often turn to our own, our own ways of religious activity. Instead of sacrificing bulls and rams and, and oil, we, we start, well, let's see, we can go to church more often and we can spend more time in prayer and we can give money, more and more money, and we can do, you know, all these different activities and, and all this stuff. But the thing is, we tell God, I'll do just about anything, don't, but just don't make me change. I like the way my life is. If you'll just bless it like that, we'll be good. But God has told us what will please Him. He wants our relationship to be with Him, to be lived out in our daily lives. He doesn't want more activity. He wants you. He wants me. And out of that relationship, God blesses the other stuff. He wants our daily lives and our actions in our homes and in our businesses to be reflections of our relationship with the God that is love. In fact, he says, I've told you what to do. What is good, O oh man, but to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Amen. This is a summation of, summation of Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. Some commentators will show. And, and, and I think as I, as I read that and as I thought of that that morning while sitting watching and listening to the ocean, that old-time religion is exactly that. What God needs of old time religion is that we would do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Because that's what will change everything. Think about it. Do justice. Now the word, the word in this understanding of justice and righteousness are often related. Justice involves bringing people into a right relationship with God and with each other, and that these right relationships would produce righteous lives. God's law provides very specific guidance to that, in fact, with regard to this behavior. You know, justice requires witnesses to be honest and impartial. It, it requires the fair treatment in the courts of all people, but especially for those who have limited resources to defend themselves. It requires special consideration for widows, orphans, and vulnerable people. We want justice as long as it's the way we understand it. But God's Word tells us a different story. In fact, I'll admit that my flesh and in my understand would, would, would like to switch some words around in this passage. My, in my earthliness, I would rather the command say to love justice rather than to do justice. I mean, phrased that way, justice becomes more abstract. It's always easier to affirm what's abstract than perform what's concrete. 
I mean, we should ask ourselves an important question. Do I really do justice? Or mainly do I just affirm the idea of justice? Is, is doing justice mainly that I'm not doing injustice? Or am I really pursuing justice for others? It's much easier to rant against injustice than to take meaningful action to stop it. Ranting costs us little to nothing. Doing justice makes demands. Loving the idea of justice is cheap, but true justice is not cheap. So God tests our hearts by making justice something that we do, not just something that we feel good about. But it doesn't stop there. Because not only are we called to do justice, but we're called to love mercy. The word mercy has a, a rich history. It's, it's in your notes um, in a variety of meanings. It, it's kindness. It's loving kindness. It's mercy, goodness, faithfulness, and love. It, it's kind of this huge wrapped up word of understanding that involves action rather than just feelings. Mercy tempers justice, though, because we want justice. We want to be everything to be right in the way we understand it. But to understand mercy alongside justice means a lot more. While doing just things means giving people what is due, mercy implies that we do it for others even then we don't owe them anything. Again, my, my flesh would prefer the command to read, do merciful things. In this case, commanding action rather than affection is a bit more manageable and measurable. But the command isn't to do mercy, it's to love mercy. It's far demanding because to just do merciful things can be reduced to occasional acts of kindness. Like, like, you know, Boy Scouts. We'll walk the old people across the street. That we did it. I checked it off. I'm good to go. But to love mercy, to take it to heart. So God tests our hearts by m making mercy not merely just things we do, but something that we love. But here's the clincher. You really can do just justice and cut it off there and some people would prefer just to do mercy and you kind of cut it off there but to do both and to do it appropriately requires the third from the very beginning and that's why Jesus kind of flipped these and he says um, that you were to walk humbly with your God have you ever wondered what's involved with walking humbly with God? I mean, first of all, it takes a good understanding of, of what we are before the Lord. We're recovering sinners. We're all recovering sinners before the Lord. Walking with humbly with God is to walk in repentance. It's, it's to walk um, 
with an understanding not of condemnation because Jesus has already taken care of that if we believe. It's, it's, it's not to walk in condemnation, but instead to walk in freedom that God's justice and His mercy provides. In fact, I, I saw this and, and I thought it was really something that needed to be shared. It says, For God so loved us in mercy that He sent His only Son to do justice for us in supreme humility that we might have eternal life in which to know and enjoy Him. You see, when a man walks humbly before God and with God, he can only walk humbly when he realizes that his relationship to the Lord is one based on the grace that God has already given us. And that we receive that grace and that God should love me. That God should take me into His family knowing all the stuff that I've done and what I even think about doing that that lays before me in all my disobedience and yet He would receive me. That's grace and justice and mercy displayed. You see, no one can walk humbly before God if they don't have a right relationship and a right understanding in their own relationship to God. It's a test of, of what you understand about yourself and what you understand about the greatness that God is and always will be. So for us this morning, as we kind of wrap up, let it be known that old-time religion it is good enough for you. But, but that old-time religion that God seeks of His church corporately and His, indivi- His disciples individually isn't about religion in the sense that what we can do on our own, that if we just act right and, and speak right and, you know, uh, you know, any other lists of human activity that we can do, that's not what we, it's about. But it is all about a religion that is so bound together in who God is that it gets beyond the stuff. And that as, as we understand who we are in relationship to God, that it changes us. It changes our heart that we, we stop giving the stuff and we start giving ourself. And as we give ourself, the other stuff just happens. Amen. That's what God desires. Amen. Not just the actions, but you. He wants you. And as you understand that, you start living it out differently. And as I walk with God, and I better understand who God is, I can't help but do justice and love mercy. And that's why Jesus came. He lived the perfect example. And said that everyone would know us by our love. In a relationship that God sent Jesus who sends us now. That we're continuing on that mission. And as the ushers come, we're going to take time together this morning in communion.